We'll hear argument this morning in case 09559, John Doe versus Reed, Washington Secretary of State. Mr. Bopp. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, no person should suffer harassment for participating in our political system, and the First Amendment protects citizens from intimidation resulting from compelled disclosure of their identity and beliefs and their private associations. What about, what about uh, requiring uh, uh, disclosure of campaign contributions? Well, they Do you think that's unconstitutional. Uh, this court has upheld uh, the, the disclosure in Buckley yeah. versus Vallejo in 1976. Right now, why doesn't that fall within your principle that no person should uh, be uh, exposed to criticism uh, for well, his could, political beliefs? It could potentially, and uh, but the court subjected the, those requirements to the appropriate constitutional First Amendment analysis, found that there was sufficiently important governmental interests some of which uh, are not present when we're talking about a referendum or initiative, and then also created an exception from even a generally valid statute where there's a reasonable probability of harassment of that particular individual or or group. So the First Amendment analysis regarding uh, the privacy of association, the privacy of identity and beliefs, the potential of, uh, of intimidation are all elements uh, of the analysis that was employed by I'm, the court I'm trying to separate out um, the harassment aspects of this case from the working proposition that there's some sort of freedom of association of privacy. Your theory, putting harassment aside, would invalidate all of the state laws that require disclosure of uh, voter registration lists, correct? All of those states, like New York, that uh, permit uh, public review of voter registration lists and party affiliations, et cetera, that's illegal. That's unconstitutional. No, we we believe they would not. They would certainly be subject to uh, First Amendment analysis, but in in those, uh, in the instance of voter registration, there are other governmental interests that are not present uh, in petition signings for referendums. To explain to me the difference, and well, one other aspect of state legislative, um, I can only work from New York as I know it intimately, but it is a state that also permits or requires that petitions for candidate listing on the ballot be public as well. New York relies in part, as this state does, on the public reviewing those petitions. Would that be invalid as well? For candidates running? Well, we, we believe it would be subject to First Amendment analysis, but again, there are different governmental interests. So explain to me involved. what the difference is in those three situations. Well, well one is you have candidates with, with the state's interest. But one is you have candidates involved. And, and this Court recognized in, in Buckley that there were disclosure interests that related specifically and actually only to candidates. For instance, uh, people who contribute to a candidate, that information to, to the voter can signal uh, the interest that the candidate, once he, t- he or she takes office, will be responsive to. When we have an initiative, we, we, we know what the law is that is being voted upon. It's not a matter of, a, of electing a representative. You, you don't think that putting aside this kind of referendum, just a hypothetical referendum having to do with a certain tax scheme. You don't think the voters would be interested in knowing 
what kinds of people and what occupations are interested in that particular tax benefit or not? Well, a few, few might be, but, I, but we think that this is marginal information. First, they are adopting a law, and, and so we know what the law is. And, and, and while it might be marginal information for a few people, uh, once the measure qualifies for the ballot, this is only uh, the, the petition signa- signature and distribution is only for a very limited governmental interest. Council, that, I, I, and that, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead and finish your answer. And, and that limited governmental interest is uh, to preserve uh, state money to, to not conduct an election on the matter unless there's sufficient public support. Now, so, Council, you, you, the responses you've given to a couple of the questions has been that the First Amendment analysis would apply. But given you have a facial challenge, is that enough? Don't you have to indicate that the First Amendment analysis would prevail in either all of the other cases, most of the other cases, significant portion? This is a facial challenge. And if the challenge is going to fail in some of those other cases, I think your facial challenge fails as well. Well, we're only challenging uh, the application of the Public Records Act to petition and referendum petitions. We're not challenging it as it would be applied to petitions to put people on the ballot. So we have to decide in assessing your claim that no matter what the referendum issue was, that there is a significant uh, intrusion on First Amendment rights. So that if, for example, the referendum involves a bond issue as to which people may have particular views, but they're not going to get terribly excited about it, uh, we'd still have to say that that's protected under the First Amendment. Well, uh, actually, under, with modern technology, it only takes a few dedicated supporters and a computer who, who are willing to map, to put this information on the Internet, map it as they did with respect to the contributors of Proposition 8, which resulted in, and then encouraged people to harass and intimidate them, which resulted in hundreds of Well, my point is, though, they're not likely to get that with respect to a, you know, a, a debt issue, raising the debt ceiling from 0.8 percent to 0.9 percent. You're not going to get a crowd outside your house because you signed that petition. Well, it, it may not manifest itself in, in any particular initiative. We agree with that. But we think the potential is there, and there is usually a, a group of, of supporters of any measure uh, that, uh, you know, are, are passionate ab- about but, that particular But don't issue. you have I, — I thought we're dealing with count one of the complaint. Yes. Count two would be the counterpart to the exception that's made from the disclosure requirement with regard to contributions for cer- certain organizations whose members might be harassed. Well, with that's, that's not — that would still be open if you lose the first part of this case. So going back to the question you were asked, how does this differ, that Justice Scalia asked, how does this differ from the contributor who, who says, well, I might be harassed? The contributor would have an opportunity to show that. Buckley de- dealt with that exact question. And first, the, the first step of the analysis is whether or not the law is, is valid uh, under the First Amendment. And then there is an exception to even a valid constitu- a constitutional so, uh, valid So I'm law. asking you why on the first part should it be any different as long as you have the door open to show that if you're going to suffer reprisals, harassment, that an exception would have to be made. Well, we don't think that the exception uh, is a substitute 
for considering the initial validity of, of the law. May I, and may I ask you one um, something that was not in your brief but was in the Secretary's brief? Um, is this list available to Project Marriage? And specifically, on page 34 of the Secretary Reed's brief, the statement is made that the sponsoring organizations uh, sometimes sell or trade these lists. They use them for fundraising purposes. So that would be the end of a person's privacy, at least on one side. Is that true that the initiative sponsor uses these lists? Yes. Or Yes? Yes, this is an act of private association that the uh, petition signers are associating with the referendum committee for purposes of placing They, they, they don't say, now I agree you can use my name for fundraising purposes, but that's a, is, it's implicit, you say, in their signing the petition yeah. well, that what? the uh, signature collector can sell the names uh, use them for its own fundraising purposes? What, what is implicit is they are associating with this group for, for a purpose, and that is support for, for uh, in this case, Referendum 71. And, and so they use those uh, names for valid uh, purposes. Mr. Bonds, do you have any case in which we have held that the First Amendment applies to activity that consists of the process of legislation, of legislating? Yes, or or of adopting two. legislation. What, what is that? Buckley, too, you struck down the requirement that the person who is soliciting signatures uh, self-identify. That, that, is, that is soliciting signatures is not taking part in the process of legislating. Well, the, the person who requests uh, a referendum is taking, uh, uh, when there is a certain number of sig- signatures required to achieve it, is taking part in that. And in light of the fact that for the first century of our existence, even voting was, was public, you, you, you either did it uh, raising your hand or by voice, or later you, you had a ballot that was very visibly uh, red or blue so that people knew which party you were voting for. Uh, the, the fact is uh, that uh, uh, running a democracy takes a certain amount of civic courage. And uh, the First Amendment does not protect you from um, criticism or uh, even even nasty phone calls uh, when you exercise your political rights to legislate or to to take part in the legislative process. Well, the, you are uh, asking us to enter into a whole new field where we've never gone before. Well, with all due respect, uh, you have uh, already opined in in Buckley too that the person on the other side of the clipboard is protected by the First Amendment. I don't think that's uh, that's true, uh, Buckley too. What was uh, what this court said could not be done is that the solicitor could not be made to wear a badge that says, "I am a paid solicitor," but that the solicitor's name had to be identified. For the state, certainly the solicitor, there was an affidavit and there was filings uh, with whatever was the state agency. So what, what was 
what this court said could not be done was this kind of in-your-face big button that says, I am a paid solicitor. But the solicitor's name and address certainly had to be disclosed. Uh, th- that is true. Uh, you've correctly descri- described Buckley, too. Uh, but as we can see in the facts of this case, the, the public disclosure of the petition names in this case, there's a planned uh, harassment and intimidation of these voters. Well, let, me, let me ask you, could the uh, opponents of a particular ballot measure organize a boycott for and, and picket businesses whose managers had supported that boycott? Yes. I had supported that initiative? Yes. Well, if, if that's so, then under Claiborne Hardware, which I, I know she didn't cite in your brief, uh, but if, if that's so, then it seems to me that the state's, uh, or that the, the uh, signer's interest in uh, keeping their, their name private is, is somewhat diminished. Yeah, it's First Amendment activity. But what, we're, but what is involved here that is not involved there is the requirement by the government that you publicly disclose your identity and beliefs on a matter that then but, subject but just, you to the boycott. Let me stop you there because I think your, your own brief, I think you said twice that you cannot tell anything about the signer's belief from the mere signature, you said it could be support for for the proposition, or it could be just support for letting the people decide, or it could even be, you say, that this solicitor is pesty, and in order to placate the solicitor, to get rid of the solicitor, we'll just sign. So you, you have said that, that the signing itself is ambiguous. You don't know what the reason is, it doesn't necessarily mean that the person is a supporter of the proposition. Uh, with all due respect, we did not say the third. Uh, we did say the first and the second. And, and e- but either of those are political statements. Uh, the highlighted box at the top, uh, it's, you know, sta- states that by signing R-71, we can uh, reverse that decision, meaning the passage of a law, and uh, protect marriage between uh, a May I call your attention to page 20 of your reply brief, because I don't think that your response was correct. You, you say, do petition signers support the repeal, simply indicate they would like public election to be held, or simply sign to avoid any further discussion with the petition circular? Uh, I, I acknowledge that we said that. Uh, Justice Ginsburg. And, 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 of course, the second statement is, uh, and which I think is the dominant statement and certainly sufficient, uh, and that is that we want a measure to be uh, placed on the ballot uh, in order for the people to vote. Well, Mr. That is Bob, a if, a, if the voter, uh, if the legislature passes a statute and someone is satisfied with that statute, how likely is it that that person is going to sign a petition to have a referendum to see whether the statute should be blocked. I think it's very unlikely, but it, it, we acknowledge it's possible. But we think it's very it's unlikely. possible. But, but if you were in the real world, if you were to poll the people who sign a referendum petition with respect to a statute that was passed by the state legislature, what percentage do you think would be uh, opposed to that legislation? Very few. And, and so uh, Justice Alito's uh, uh, question points out that this would be uh, 
a, a very slim basis upon which to rest a holding in your favor. And just to go back to the line of questions with the first, the State of California has very complicated uh, referendum and initiative matters. Uh, don't you think it's relevant uh, for the public to know uh, that, say, a public employees union had paid solicitors to put those signatures on the ballot or that the Chamber of Commerce or the National Association of Manuf- Manufacturers had paid solicitors to put this on the ballot? Isn't that part of assessing uh, the, 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 the reasons why this initiative was proposed? And isn't that vital to the voters' to the voter in in making an informed decision. Well, actually, after your Buckley II decision, the Ninth Circuit struck down the requirement of disclosing uh, the paid uh, circulators. And, and of course, in California, petitions are not public. They did that. It wasn't due to Buckley II because, as you just acknowledged, under Buckley II, the solicitor is disclosed. Well, but but the point is, isn't isn't there an interest in knowing this information? Not not that it's paid. There's leave that out. But 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 to know the 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 persons that supported the amendment. There's no evidence in the record that that is uh, pertinent information, and and at most we think it is marginal uh, information. Council, if we create this right of constitutional right of association in the manner that you're describing it, why is it limited to the voting area? Would we be inviting review if a group of citizens get together and send a letter to an agency that says, please um, pass X regulation or rescind Y regulation? Um, would the agency be prohibited from making that letter public? Well, potentially, and, and this Court, uh, I, because it would be required to be subject to a First Amendment analysis, is this Court that created in, in the NACP case. So you're, the right you're of suggesting that when a, pit, a petitioner or a person engages in political discourse with the government, that they, when they choose to do it, because the government's not compelling them to write to it, it's not compelling them to sign the referendum. Mm-hmm. And they're not compelling Mrs. McIntyre to distribute her brochure either. Uh, But uh, this Court held that — But Ms. McIntyre wasn't asking the government to engage its process in her favor. She was asking for political reform, but she wasn't asking to engage the government process on her behalf. Well, the government, you know, has a lot of options. For instance, they don't have to uh, conduct elections for the election of judge. But if they opt to do that and provide that procedure, uh, well, then the First Amendment applies. To follow up on Justice Sotomayor's question, do you think an agency could say, if you want to comment on on a proposed rule, you have to disclose to us your name and your address and your telephone number and your political affiliation and all sorts of uh, your marital status and your income level and all sorts of other demographic information? Uh, and your employer, as in the Could case. Could they do that? Uh, no, no uh, because there's no sufficient governmental interest that would just Not even it. just your name so they can check that this thing isn't phony and that all the names on it aren't, uh, aren't made up by one person? They, of course, can, can check that. Of course that. can, so they can get your name, right? Well, yes, they can get your name, and we're not okay. objecting to but uh, you're the objecting filing of the to the petition. public being able to check whether the agency is indeed uh, uh, finding out whether this is a genuine petition or not. No, no, I'm not objecting to that. They no. have procedures to check and verify these signatures do, that do not involve. Didn't you have some public. options too. Have you started a referendum to repeal the uh, 
the California law that requires disclosure? California law does not require disclosure of the petitions, and that has been upheld by the courts of California. And that you can verify well, this. I don't signature. understand. I thought that's what you're challenging. The the. Uh, well, but you uh, asked about California. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Washington. I got the wrong state. Okay. Uh, the, the people of Wash, uh, the people of Washington, evidently think that this is not too much of an imposition upon people's courage to uh, to stand up and, and sign something and be willing to stand behind it. In, in a now, if, if you don't like that, I can see doing it another way. But but the people of Washington have chosen to do it this this way. Uh, actually, and you're saying that the First Amendment absolutely forbids that. Actually, for a century they chose not to do this. It wasn't until That's 2006. Fine. Proving my point. They did not publicly disclose the petitions yeah. for a century. Might have been a good idea. What, what I, I suppose the, the majority of the voters in Washington decided that, and one of the purposes of the First Amendment is to protect minorities. Well, only in the most general sense. They adopted a Public Records Act. They didn't adopt a law that specifically required a disclosure of these petitions. But, in Mr. Bob, this, this is not a peculiar thing to the state of Washington. That's correct, isn't it? Aren't there about 20-odd states that require disclosure of the names of signers to initiatives? Referendum. That is true. Some, some in their initiative and referendum statute, because they actually provide some public input on verification where Washington does not. Others uh, under their Public Records Act. Uh, some do not, such as California. So, but what you're saying with respect to Washington would go for most of those other states that have, that have public disclosure of initiative and referendum petitions. Well, well one, one thing we say is different between Washington and these other states is that Washington provides no way for the public, even if they get access to the petitions, uh, to pr participate in the verification process. The only thing the public can do uh, is have observers, limited number of observers. These observers are prohibited from uh, — I thought that, th that there were instances where if the state official missed something. And a member of the public who had access to the list of signers said, wait a minute, I know so-and-so, was my neighbor died five years ago. That's not allowed in the state of Washington. The uh, instructions from the Secretary of State is while you can have observers to observe the process. The, the but you mean if it, that was over, it passed the screen of the Secretary of State, it's disclosed to the public, if someone then said you've got a lot of dead souls on this list, the state would do nothing about it? There is absolutely no procedure under Washington statute to do anything. Well, we'll ask, we'll ask, nothing. The, we'll ask the, the Attorney General of Washington. Yes. Uh, here, or weren't two of the petitioners here seeking the list so that they could go over the certification process the state had done to ensure that they had certified all the right people? Well, one, of, one of the interveners uh, sought an ex exception from the, uh, from the injunction, which we did not object to, that, that, that they would have access to the list, but under confidentiality and protection. I'm not order. going to the privacy questions. You responded to Justice Ginsburg by saying that there was no way to challenge the state's process of validation, uh, it, and that 
I don't think that's correct. Well, with all respect, I didn't say that. What I, uh, what I said is there's no role for the public in verifying signatures. That you can uh, well, ask that's for assuming review. the answer, meaning if they don't have a right to access, they can't. But legally, they can challenge it if they find on the petitions that things were erroneously counted by the state. They can go into court and prove that. The, the only thing that they could do is request that the court does its own count. In other words, there's judicial review available. But the public has no role in the verification, but they can trigger judicial review. And then the court conducts its own count. In other words, this is not an adversary process in which people come in and present evidence of, of people's uh, of, of in, invalid signatures. Why would you involve the court if the states, the executive representative of the state says, oh, we missed that. Yeah, we're glad to deal with it. We don't need any court to order us to do it. Well, the obser- observers can observe the process, and if they feel— no, this is after the observers. This is well, we're talking a- about a member of the public noticing that there are people on the list who shouldn't be there. Well, the, the observer—under the Washington procedure, uh, uh, observers can observe the process, and if they feel, or if anyone feels— uh, that there has been an inadequate job in, in verification, then they can ask for judicial review, and then the court can Why would they ask for judicial review instead of going first to the state's attorney general and saying, look, you, your people missed it? Well, there's Why no procedure involve for the that. court? That's not, there's no procedure for that. You know, uh, <laughs> if, if they wanted to involve the public, and that's the difference, I said, between this procedure and other procedures. They're claiming the need for public disclosure so the public can be involved in verification. Well, there's isn't, no isn't procedure there another, <coughs> involved in verification. Isn't, isn't there another possible public interest? It, 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 would it be a legitimate public interest to saying, I'd like to know who signed the petition because I would like to try to persuade them that their views should be modified? Is there a public interest in encouraging debate on the underlying issue? Well, uh, it's, it's possible. Well, we think this information is marginal. In other words, the, it's much more important. Well, but it does identify people who have a, per, a particular point of view on a public issue. And if you have the other point of view, don't you have an interest in finding out who you'd like to convince to change their minds? Well, we, we think it's a, mar- a very marginal interest. Uh, the, the Ninth Circuit recently ruled that uh, if you give a small contribution to an initiative, there's not — I mean, nobody cares. So — uh, why should it be publicly disclosed when just, it's so just, marginal? What about just wanting to know their names so you can criticize them? Is, well, is, is that such a bad thing in a democracy? Well, what, what is bad is not the criticism. It, it's the public it, — it's the government requiring you to disclose your identity and belief. Yeah, but, but part of the reason is so you can be out there — and be responsible for the positions you Well, then why don't they so require people, both sides? people can criticize you for the position. Then why don't they require both sides if that was What do you problem? mean both sides? The other sides haven't signed anything. Well, when but the other side are — When they sign something, they'll be out there for public criticism as well. Okay, but this is a one-way street. Oh, this is such a touchy-feely, oh, so sensitive about, about any, uh, you know — you can't run a democracy this way with, with, with everybody being uh, afraid of, of having his political positions known. I'm sorry, Justice uh, uh, Scalia, but the campaign manager of this initiative had his 
family sleep in his living room because of the threats. Oh, that's well, then, bad. That's the threats should be moved against vigorously. And, but and, just because there can be criminal activity doesn't mean that you, you, you have to eliminate uh, a procedure that is otherwise perfectly reasonable. But all we're asking for is a First Amendment analysis of the compelled disclosure of the identity of these people and whether or not these interests are sufficient. Could I reserve the balance of my time? Thank you, Mr. Bob. General McKenna. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin with the question of how the public can bring to the attention of the government that errors and fraud have been discovered. First of all, it's important to understand that the petitions uh, do not become public records after the verification process, but in fact are made available as public records before the verification process even begins. This is because the Secretary of State's first step after receiving submitted petitions is to take them to his archiving section and to have them digitized. As soon as they're digitized, they're available on uh, disks for anyone who requests them. Then the verification process begins. During the verification process, it is possible — How much time are we talking about in those processes? The verification process, just a minute, mm-hmm. The verification process will depend on uh, how many signatures have been submitted. No, no, no. I'm and trying to get the relationship between the disk being made available and the verification process. So is there time for the public to look through the disk before the people who are sent into the room are sent into the room? That's what you just said. Yes, that, they're, that they're immediately, immediately available on the disk. And so while the, um, Checking is going on by the Secretary. The public has the list. Is that yes, that's correct. For example, in the case of Referendum 71, uh, the um, proponents of the referendum submitted the petition sheets on Saturday, July 25, 2009, and on Tuesday, July 28, a uh, records request was already submitted. And so they can well, obtain records. Was that pursuant to the Public Records Act that we're talking about, or was yep. that part of the initiative and referendum structure? Uh, before the Public Records Act was passed. Justice Kennedy, this is part of the Public Records Act. This is a, as a result of the Public Records Act that these petition sheets are made available. So, Council. All right. So this, the, the public record — pardon me. Um, the the, the uh, I, California, we call it initiative and referendum mm-hmm. process, uh, it existed and was in place before the Public Records Act added this additional feature of disclosure. Yes, that's correct. So there was a judgment at one time by the State of Washington that it didn't that it didn't need the public records disclosure. Well, when the initiative and referendum processes were created by public vote on a constitutional amendment in 1912, there was no public records act at all. And the Public Records Act, a, a, an act of general applicability, was adopted by the voters in 1973 as part of an initiative which also enacted comprehensive campaign finance reform. Council, if the state had a law that you could disclose uh, voters and for whom they voted. Would that implicate First Amendment interests? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice. We, be- would, we do believe that First Amendment interests would be implicated by revealing how people voted, and we don't see a legitimate state interest in knowing how people voted. Only so the country was voted. acting unconstitutionally for a whole century before we adopted the Australian secret ballot. You really no, think that? No, Justice Scalia. That it was unconstitutional no, for Justice a whole Scalia. century not to have the secret ballot. No, Justice Scalia. I didn't say that I thought that the secret ballot is constitutionally required. I was asked by the Chief Justice whether some First Amendment interest would be implicated. They probably What would, would the First Amendment interest be? Well, the First Amendment interest in how you vote? Yes. Uh, 
you know, might be implicated by a potential chill from voting if you know your vote is going to be revealed. Do you think having your name revealed on a petition of this sort might have a chilling effect on when you sign it? Mr. Chief Justice, some chill may result, just as some chill may result from having your campaign contributions disclosed, or the fact that you've registered to vote and provided your name, address, your voting history is being disclosed. So some chill might be, uh, might result, but we do not think that it is uh, You don't think revealing that you're a voter has the same chilling effect as revealing how you voted, do you? No, I do not. I think how you voted would have a much greater chilling effect than the fact that you're registered to vote. And, and, of, and of course, this Court has not ruled on whether the secret ballot is, you know, a constitutional right. If, if it is, then is town hall voting in New England unconstitutional? Is the caucus system in Iowa for presidential candidates unconstitutional? The, the Court in this case does not well, have well, to ask right, questions. you told me that the, the First Amendment interests were implicated with respect to the secret ballot, that you couldn't require people to, s- to reveal how they voted. We don't, we don't know if this Court would rule that the vote can never be revealed. We know that in some places votes are done in public. We know that before the late 1800s there was no secret ballot. We just we don't know what the constitutional ruling would be. But we all, we do know that in this case it's not necessary for the court to reach that that determination because in well, this I'd case, like to know how far you you, are, you want to go. You say in your brief that the availability of the referendum signature petitions allows. Washington voters to engage in discussion of referred measures with persons whose acts secured the election and suspension of state law. So would, would it be consistent with the First Amendment to require anybody who signs a petition to put down not just the person's name and address but also telephone number so that they could in, be engaged in a conversation about what they had done? It, it would depend on the strength of the state interest in having the telephone number. The state does not have an interest in the telephone number on the petition form uh, because the state has only needs to know from the petition form the name and the address in order to verify. I thought that you were saying that one of the interests that's served by this is to allow people who uh, to, to allow Washington citizens to discuss this matter with those who signed the petition. So putting down the telephone number would assist them in doing that. It, yes, it probably would make it easier for people to contact. So you would, you would endorse that? That would be a policy determination for the legislature to make, Justice. No, I'm not asking the policy question. I'm asking whether the First Amendment would permit that. I believe it could permit that. Yes, Justice. Now, one of your co-respondents says that supplying this information provides insight whether support comes predominantly from members of particular political or religious organizations. Uh, would it be consistent with the First Amendment to require anybody who signs a petition to list person's religion? No, I do not believe it would, Justice Alito. Suppose that in uh, 1957, in Little Rock, uh, a group of Little Rock citizens <coughs> had wanted to put on the ballot a petition to require the school board to reopen Central High School, which had been closed because there was sentiment in the community that they didn't want integration. And it was pointed out that if they signed this petition, there was a very good chance that their businesses would be bombed, that they would certainly be boycotted, that their children might be harassed. Now, was there no First Amendment right in protecting those people? And if there is, how does it differ from your case? Justice Breyer, that is count two. That is count two of the petitioner's complaint. This Court ruled as recently as Citizens United 
that such a situation should be evaluated on a case-by-case basis to evaluate the reasonable probability of threats, harassments, and reprisals. So you would, you would have no objection to an as-applied challenge to disclosing the names of individuals to a particular uh, cause where it is demonstrated that the opponents of that cause are violent and will do violence to the people who signed the petition. Yes, Justice Scalia, that would be the Socialist Workers' Party case. This, this Court has ruled that on a case-by-case basis, it is possible that some information otherwise disclosed. What about so a, this is just what a about general a challenge to ever, ever disclosing the names of petition signers? Of any type of petition, okay. including nominating petitions, initiative petitions, and the rest. What about a business boycott? Suppose that were a, a, a likely outcome of disclosing the name. Well, of course, boycotts have been upheld under the First Amendment in Claiborne Hardware. And so if someone wanted to boycott a business because it turned out that the manager of the business had been a supporter of a particular ballot measure, that would be allowable, of course, to that person choosing to boycott. Counsel, your answer to Justice Breyer was that they can bring an as-applied challenge. Now, that as-applied challenge would be small comfort unless the names were protected pending the resolution of that challenge, correct? Yes. So you think a stay should be granted in this case to allow the uh, petitioners to pursue an as-applied challenge? Yes, of course. Yes, they could apply for uh, another preliminary injunction if this Court upholds the Court of Appeals. They were able to obtain that preliminary injunction in this case, which is why uh, these petition forms have not been released to date except under a protective order. Uh, by the court to the uh, opponent. Do you think that the uh, disclosure of the names pending the resolution of their as-applied challenge would subject them to incidents of violence and intimidation? We — there's no evidence of that in the record. With, is, there's is no, there's no evidence — there's no evidence of episodes of violence or intimidation? Involving the referendum 71 signers? No. The evidence in the record is about people who are out circulating petitions, people who are out uh, you know, campaigning for the petitions, the campaign manager for the measure. But none of the evidence in the record speaks to petition signers, and none of the evidence in the record speaks to petition signers for other similar measures which are cited by the petition. Is that because nobody got to count to uh, the district court? This whole case in the lower courts was on count one alone, was yes, that is, so? Yes, that and is true. count two is the one that deals with the harassment. That is true, Justice Ginsburg. Of course, in several other states, Arkansas, Florida, and Massachusetts, which had similar measures regarding uh, gay civil rights or same-sex marriage on the ballot, in those three states, the petition forms were obtained under public records, were put on the Internet, and no evidence has been provided that, that's in the record that anyone who signed any of those petitions in those three states was subjected to harassment. Well, let's say somebody is, is thinking of uh, circulating a petition on a sensitive subject and fears that people may be dissuaded from signing because they fear retaliation. At what point could they bring this as-applied challenge? Do they have to — could they do it before they even begin to circulate the petition, arguing that if — uh, if these names, if people are, are not assured ahead of time that their name and address is not going to be revealed to the public on the Internet, they're not going to sign this. Justice Alito, it would be possible procedurally for them to bring the motion for an injunction even before collecting the signatures and if they had sufficient they, evidence. How would they prove that there's, that there's a, a threat, a sufficient threat of harassment in that particular case before the petition is even signed? I, I believe that the sponsors of the measure would bring to the court uh, evidence, if they have any, of uh, because of the controversial nature of that particular measure uh, that uh, is based on what's happened to some of the people who are planning to but, put the but measure you, on the ballot. But you've rejected that here. You've said there's no evidence here 
that any of the petition, petition signers right. were subjected to any harassment. Of course there isn't, because the names haven't gotten out yet. How, how can you possibly demonstrate before the names get out that petition signers are going to be su- subjected to harassment? One could learn or, or otherwise don't insist upon evidence that these very petition signers will be harassed. I, I imagine, Justice Scalia, that the individuals moving for that preliminary injunction would do what the petitioners have done in this case. They would cite to an example from another state uh, involving a comparable and, and you think that would be an acceptable uh, type of evidence? They could bring it into the court. I'm not saying the court would accept it because I don't know. Well, what if, if you don't think it's acceptable, then, 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 then you're no. not making an argument. Justice Scalia, I didn't say I couldn't be acceptable. I'm saying this is a hypothetical, so I don't know what the evidence would look like in the hypothetical example. Well, the, the hypothetical is that before this petition is circulated, the, the supporters came into court and they said, look what's happened in California with, with, with Proposition 8. Don't disclose, enter an order prohibiting the public disclosure of the names and addresses here. Would that be sufficient? Justice Alito, I think that the evidence would have to be very strong. It would have to rise above uh, criticism. I think it would have to rise to the level of threat and violence. It would have to rise to the level of the Socialist Workers' Party case, for example, or of the NAACP case. I think the standard would be very high, but it would be up to the trial judge to decide whether or not the evidence was sufficient to issue the preliminary injunction. The, the, the State has had this procedure now uh, for some time, and they have been controversial ballot initiatives. Is there any history in the state of Washington that signers have been subject to harassment? There is not, Justice Ginsburg, and that's even though a half a dozen initiatives on a variety of topics have been released, another half dozen are pending. What's the, the, the most sensitive similar petition for a referendum? There has been no measure on uh, domestic partner benefits or same-sex marriage in Washington no, but State, what's but the, there are other what's, — What's the other one that's going to get people uh, — uh, uh, that's the most controversial public issue? Just — Proposition 8? No, I'm well, talking about in Washington, in Washington Council. State, Mr. Chief Justice, we've had measures on uh, assisted suicide, for example, which was very controversial. Uh, and, and there's no evidence involving that set of was it Was the referendum in favor or opposed to assisted suicide? It was — well, the referendum challenges the assisted suicide law. So if you vote for the referendum, you vote to uphold the legislature's adoption of that law, which, which allowed assisted suicide. So this, there have been controversial measures. This case will likely be controlled by our First Amendment precedents because that's the most fully developed. Uh, did you look at the petition clause at all? In, in the early days of the Republic, the petitions — with the way in which you uh, communicated with your legislator. Yes. And I tried to look it up. I, I have the recollection, but I'm not sure, that those petitions were sometimes put in the congressional record. Uh, did, did you look at the history of the petition clause? Justice Kennedy, we have considered the history of the petition clause, and we see a, a, a basic difference between the kinds of petitions under the petition clause and petitions at issue here, because essentially petitioning the government under the petitions clause is asking the government to do something. You're petitioning them, please do something. The petitions for a referendum or an initiative are telling the government to do something. The petition form says that I, the signer, am directing the Secretary of State to conduct an election. And by submitting these petitions in a referendum, I'm suspending the law which the legislature has already approved until the election has taken place. Tell versus ask. I think that's a pretty big, a significant difference. But, of course, that 
can cut the other way, too, because then it's more like a vote. And uh, their their strong interest in keeping uh, the the vote private. And, Justice Kennedy, I'd I'd like to speak to that question because several justices asked, well, what can we tell from what, you know, someone who's signed? Do we know how they're going to vote? I I agree that uh, many people signing a petition uh, are going to vote uh, in favor of, uh, in the case of an initiative, in favor of the law the initiative would put on the ballot. But we also know from the social science research, which is cited, for example, in the direct uh, democracy scholars' green brief, that many people sign simply because they believe it's important for the, pu- for the public to have an opportunity to vote. And, of course, as the petitioners have acknowledged, and we also point out, some people vote just to get around the circulator what to get percentage? into the score. What percentage of the people who signed this petition to put this law in the referendum do you think signed it because they think these sort of things should be generally put to a public vote, as opposed to because they opposed? The percentage of people who believe simply that there should be a vote held has not been quantified by the research, except that several scholars uh, indicate that it is significant. So whether it's 20 percent or 40 percent, I, I really can't say with that. You think certain. as much as 20 percent of the people who signed this petition are actually in favor of the law that it's aimed to repeal? It is possible, but it's also possible some of those 20 percent don't have an opinion on the law, Mr. Chief Justice. They simply think that there should be a vote held and they'll make up their mind later on. There are plenty of people who aren't aware when certain laws are are adopted that are subjected to a referendum, and they may not have decided at all. In fact, one of the reasons they may sign the petition is to say, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to vote, but, you know, I think a public vote would be a good idea. So I'm going to let it go forward to be on the ballot. Can I ask you this question? It seems to me the strongest state interest here is detecting fraud. And you mentioned that the records are digitized. And maybe you can uh, correct my impression of this, but it seems to me that if the records are digitized, there are very simple ways of detecting fraud that would not require the disclosure of the list to the, to the public. Uh, if somebody wants to see whether his or her name has been fraudulently put on the list, wouldn't it be very simple to set up a website where the person could put in a little bit of identifying information and see whether that person's name is on the list? And if the, pur- the purpose is to see whether a particular person lives at a particular address, couldn't you just cross-reference by means of a computer program the information on the referendum with the, uh, with the voting list? So if you've got John Jones who lives at uh, 10 Main Street, you see whether there really is a registered voter, John Jones, who lives at 10 Main Street. Why does this all have to be put out on the Internet? Justice uh, Alito, the, uh, just to be clear, you're right. They do use computer, uh, computers because when, in the verification process, the Secretary of State staff with the observers looking over their shoulder will look at the petition and look up that voter in an in electronic voter registration database. This is exactly why the information is so useful to the public as well. They have access to uh, electronic online uh, voter registration history as well, and they can also check. In, in Massachusetts, under their public records law in 2006, petition forms obtained by public records request were put online uh, and over 2,000 people, as has been documented in the Lambda amicus brief, discovered that they, their names were on petitions, and yet they claimed they had not signed and discovered that they had been, in some cases, well, What's the answer to my question? Couldn't, you, couldn't this be done very simply? If I want to see whether somebody has fraudulently signed my name, very quickly go to a website. wouldn't be expensive to set up. Put in your voter ID number, 
and see whether in your name and see whether you're on the on yes. the, whether you somebody signed your name to the petition. Yes, Justice Leo, that that could be done in our state and in the other states. That's done when someone requests the public records and chooses to put them online. The state doesn't does not put the petition forms online itself, although it, you know other information is put online by the state. Do, do we take this case on the assumption? Do you make the contention before us that the Secretary of State uh, and those who assisted? Uh, are not capable of determining whether the petition signatures are valid. No, we are not taking that position, Justice Kennedy. Of course, I mean, with, with, without public disclosure. What we know, Justice Kennedy, is that in dozens of states around the around the country, uh, as recently as 2009 in Maryland, 2006 in Massachusetts, and so on, it was the it was the public who requested ballot petitions by public records request who found significant fraud and error. This isn't just about fraud. Fraud is very important. It's also about finding plain old mistakes which the state secretary of state or auditor has missed. That, that does happen with regularity in this country, and we cite cases in our brief where errors, not fraud, but errors in Washington State have been discovered by people who look at these public records. And uh, Sometimes it, the public may not trust the Secretary of State. It, yes, sir. Uh, Justice Scalia, I mean, that, it, it we It may agree. be an issue in which his administration has taken a, a particularly firm stand, and the public may not trust the job that the Secretary of State does. That goes to the heart of the Public Records Act, Justice Scalia, trust but verify. The people did not leave to the state the idea that, well, we'll let you know what you need to know. The trust want to but check verify. I like that. <laughs> you did say something about uh, this category of speech. You said, well, this is uh, in the category that it's like O'Brien, it has speech elements and non-speech elements. And I was trying to figure out which, what is it in a signature that speaks and what is it in a signature that doesn't speak? The speech element could be construed in the fact that someone has chosen to sign a petition which we know means they want something to be put on the ballot. So they favor having it on the ballot. That, that much we know. But we also look to Burdick, of course, because in, this, in, in the Burdick decision, this Court held that write-in voting um, could be prohibited by the State of Hawaii. That was upheld by the Court of Appeals in this Court, and this Court found that writing in a candidate's name was not even expressive conduct. So we look to the Burdick level of intermediate scrutiny, to the O'Brien level of intermediate scrutiny for the test. Justice Ginsburg, the other point I wanted to bring up is something about Buckley, too. What is this? Uh, to, to finish your answer to Justice Ginsburg's question, what is the non-speech component of signing a petition? The, the non-speech component is uh, suspension of the law in the case of a referendum or uh, the, uh, the legislative effect. We, we believe this is a legislative act fundamentally. In and what's the state's interest in regulating the, the non-speech component? When you, when you talk about the vote cast by an elected representative, of course there's a strong interest in knowing how an elected representative voted because the, the representative is answerable to the voters. But somebody who signs a petition isn't answerable to anybody any other citizen. So what's your interest? The interest, Justice Alito, is knowing, first of all, that there were a sufficient number of signatures submitted to qualify the measure for the ballot. That's the fraud interest. That's the fraud interest. And secondly, there is a valid informational interest in knowing who is it exactly who's calling for this election and suspending well, it. But how far does that go? When I asked you whether you could — you want to know the religion of the people who signed? No, you can't do that. Uh, how much more demographic information could be collect, could be 
does, this, does the State of Washington have an interest in making publicly available about the people who support this election? Let's say it's a, it's a referendum about immigration. Is, does the State of Washington have an interest in uh, providing information to somebody who says, I want to know how many people with Hispanic names signed this or how many people with Asian names signed this? Is that, that what you want to facilitate? No, Justice Alito, we don't need to know that. We need to know whether there were a sufficient number of registered voters who signed. We need to know whether they signed more than once. Uh, we need to know they were registered in Washington State. The informational interest, uh, I think, that you could collect, the information you could collect to satisfy the informational interest might include other information that's in the voter registration uh, records. You, you might want I to know. I thought one of the reasons you wanted to do this was so people would have information that would allow them to participate in the civic process. And there are people who th might think it makes a difference uh, whether the referendum was requested by primarily by members of a particular ethnic group or not. So isn't, doesn't, I thought your brief would say the state has an interest in that type of disclosure. I don't see what the valid state interest would be in knowing the ethnicity of the person. I mean, of course, anyone can look at the petition ballots forms and, I suppose, divine something about the ethnicity based on the last name. But the state's interest doesn't go, go to that. That we don't we don't believe we need to know that. We believe we need to know what is request, uh, required on the on the petition form. But I, and I don't understand what information is being dis, what, what information you think you're providing to the public outside of the fraud area. If I see that John Jones from Seattle signed this petition. Right. That tells me absolutely nothing. Well, Justice Alito, it might — if you know John Jones, that would tell you something. Number two, we know from the — we know from the, you know, direct democracy scholars' uh, green brief that intermediaries, and especially the press and sometimes social science researchers and others, will, will look at the names and they'll be able to tell, for example, that a large number of uh, employees at one company signed a measure. Maybe it's a measure that would cut a tax break for a particular uh, industry or perhaps members of a union, large numbers have signed. How, intermediaries how they, will provide that information. How can they find that out with just the name and address that a large number of people from a company signed it? Well, you don't, the, you don't have to put on who you work for. No, you? you do not. I'm saying intermediaries might discover this, for example, by taking a close look at who's paying for um, the, the signature gathering. If it's paid signature gathering, they might be aware of prominent sponsors. In fact, the, the importance of knowing who the sponsors is is demonstrated. I'm sorry, I'm still on the companies. How, no, how, how does knowing who the sponsors are tell you how many people from a particular company signed the petition? Well, uh, a voter who, know, who works at that same company or, or does business at that same company might know that, gosh, I know these employees and they've, they've all signed this petition. The press might be able to do the research to find that out. Intermediaries do play an important role. The last point, if I may, I wanted to make about, uh, about Buckley II is that the petitioners have stressed that Buckley II struck, struck down the requirement to wear the name badge. But in that same decision, this Court upheld the requirement by Colorado that affidavits signed by the petition circulators, including the petition circulators' name and address, can be disclosed as public records. And, and the Court ruled that, uh, found that, and, and compared it favorably to the badge requirement because the disclosure as a public record occurred after the heat of the moment, after the moment of interactive discussion. It happened later on. And we believe of all the Court's rulings that that approval of the disclosure requirement of the, of the, of the uh, affidavit in contrast to the badge is the most similar to requiring after the fact or allowing after the fact for petitions to be disclosed under the Public Records Act. You know, if somebody called your office and said, um, I'd like the, the home address of all the, all the attorneys who work in the Attorney's General's office because we want to we go to their homes and have uncomfortable conversations with them, which is what's 
been alleged here. Would you release that information? We would not, Justice Alito. We would not release it because they can come to the office and have uncomfortable conversations with them, <laughs> which I can personally attest happens with some regularity. Is it that information, at least the names of those people, isn't it probably public information anyway? Yes, it is. Can it be obtained under the Freedom of Information Act of the state? Yes, it can. Their names, their office locations, their office phone numbers, their office emails, is all a matter of public record in our state. Thank you very much. Thank you, General McKenna. Now, Mr. Boff, you have two minutes remaining. Thank you. Uh, first, a clarification of what we sought in the preliminary injunction. We were we sought to base our preliminary injunction on both count one and count two. Of course, the district court and the Ninth Circuit did not reach, in either uh, case, reach count two. Uh, secondly, uh, with respect to whether or not there is any conduct here, uh, I don't think signing a written statement is conduct. And, of course, by signing the statement, the person is adopting uh, the statement on the petition uh, one of which involves uh, their preference on the uh, referendum, and the second uh, is the uh, re uh, request that the matter goes on the ballot. And, of course, it has no legal effect unless 122,000 make the same political uh, statement. Uh, third, uh, evidence of harassment comes in as in Citizens United uh, because the weight of the interest that is required depends upon the burden of the First Amendment to the First Amendment speech involved. And this Court specifically referred in Citizens United to the lack of evidence of harassment uh, of the uh, donors that uh, might occur uh, if uh, they were disclosed through the reports which Citizens United upheld. Here we do have evidence uh, of harassment, and we believe that that requires a greater burden uh, in the First but Amendment. But that's out of the case up till now. That's count two. You put it in your pleading, but it wasn't reached by the court. Actually not. Um, many so everybody agrees that that's still in the case. Yes, but it is relevant to count one. Uh, Bates, for instance, uh, looked to uh, the evidence of, of harassment in protecting the membership list of the NACP from uh, disclosure. The uh, courts did not rule on whether there was a risk of harassment here. Well, that, that, it dealt only with count one. Uh, that is that is true, yeah, Your Honor. There are uh, were several First Amendment claims made it, made under count one, and this uh, decision was was based on other claims. I see my time is up. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bob. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at ten o'clock. <laughs>